This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and my good friend in person, Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, man? Chilling, man. As per usual. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. When I said come over and we'll record an episode um, in person, live, you didn't imagine this setup, did you? No, not at all. It looks like you know, you're know you currently in full moving mode. There's like a, I don't know, a bed next to me, which is probably pretty good for the sound blocking, but... I don't know. Everything's in disarray and we're working off of one microphone. <laughs> so the problem is is that we are missing a wire for the second mic. So we have to share a mic. And not only do we have to share a mic, we have to share a mic in this awkward position where we're sitting next to each other, we're having a conversation, and we can't we're not looking at each other. We're no. looking straight at a at a computer screen and a wall. So um, it's it's um, it's, it's actually awkward. less personable and more awkward than recording online. We I'm, made it that we made it that way. I've got Henry at the side of my eye, basically, and that's all I see of him. <laughs> so we're we're having a conversation with each other while staring, not looking at each other at all. It's very weird. So I'm going to imagine that if this is a camera, right? This is the only way to do that is imagine that this, this is a variety show. If you want, we camera. can boot up Skype and I'll, I'll look at you from my screen and you look at me from your screen. Dude, that, would, that would even be weirder. <laughs> well, at least we're not sharing needles. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So sorry to bring you here while I'm moving. Um, as you can see, and something I will not recommend for anyone is do not, if you decide to move into a new home. Don't move into a new home while you have a baby. Or a very pregnant wife for that Or a very pregnant wife who's expecting around the same time as your move-in date. It adds to a lot of stress. I'm calling it now. You're having that baby on the same day that you move in. Yeah. It's just like there's so much shit involved moving in and i and i just re- realized that i hate government more than i <laughs> hate government already like every single day this reminder of like oh man and i remember why i called myself a libertarian so we're moving in and we want to have some work done to the house one of the things that we need to do is do the windows and you have to get a permit to to change your windows to change your windows you need to you need a permit to, to change a light bulb <laughs> jesus but uh, in terms of just moving into a new house, um, obviously it's exciting and, and all of this. The first thing that happened to me when we closed, this is the very first thing. I walk into the door, I open up the screened-in door, and then the door, the screened-in door stopper just cracks. <laughs> just cracks. And I'm like, all right, well, there's the ha- first house repair. It's very minor. It's a very minor thing, obviously. It's like 10 bucks. It's 10 bucks to replace it, you know? Right. 
but it's just like the remind it's just the reminder that how many things can go wrong that now you're responsible for or now you're the landlord yeah well now you have to you actually have to do it you just can't call a guy for free and they're going to come you can't put a ticket in with your building management company and then have someone come up there and fix it within you know 3 to 4 days you have to do it yourself and um, it's going to be fun to explore all the other things that stop working that are a lot more expensive than $10 over the next... The shit that you uh, didn't get year. from the inspection, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, no house is perfect. Long Island, in Long Island, all the houses are pretty old. A lot of houses in Long Island are, have, were built in the 1910s, you know, 1920s. There's a lot of super old houses out there. Um, of course, they've been renovated and stuff, but... There's going to be a lot of problems, a lot of uh, maintenance, and um, I'm not exactly the most handy person in the world, so there's things that I need to pick up in terms of life skills, which are exciting but um, and annoying. But um, back to the point, if you're having a baby, a newborn, your first, your first child, um, don't recommend the time. I recommend having a baby and your first child. This is wonderful, wonderful experience. But I don't recommend doing both at the exact same week because it is uh, a lot. But uh, honestly, small complaints um, about life. Otherwise, things are, you know, Otherwise obviously you very good. Otherwise, you have to be grateful for. I mean, now you're about to expand your family and have a new home, new chapter in your life. All of this sounds awesome. Yeah. And I'm every, very excited for Everything you. is good. I'm just kind of complaining for the <laughs> to be a complainer and to, and to have fun banter. Yeah. But yeah, fucking permits suck. <laughs> that's that's my new uh, amazing, my new number one enemy in the world is any type of permit for home improvement or home extensions. I'm, I'm They're right paying yes. All right. Um, now that we got the banter portion of the show out of the way. We are going to be talking about, and this is sort of a follow-up to the last episode that we did in, in some regard where we, we spoke about the partition of Africa. Um, over the past couple of weeks, we've, we've been speaking about Africa in terms of just um, how it was essentially divided and balkanized in the different regions. And one of the big themes was geography. And Africa's geography is, of course, is very large. Um, there's a lot of challenges in creating civilization in, in many parts of, especially sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in terms of the river systems there, in terms of just the, how the scope and the terrain there, which hasn't been really friendly to, to establishing like large settlements or large civilizations. Um, there's been a lot of isolation due to, to, to mountains and, and, and the terrain and, and this, the vast open space and, and the, in the tropics. And it was one of the reasons why Europe was able to kind of carve through it and, and really subjugate so many people there when they reached a point of, you know, technology advancement that just put them so far ahead. So that was one of the themes of the past couple of weeks. And, and today there's an essay that Thomas Sowell wrote. And, and Thomas Sowell is one of my favorite writers. And for those of you who don't know him, um, Thomas Sowell is probably the, in my opinion, he's the best conservative writer ever. Um, he's a black conservative from Harlem. He writes a lot about, um, he, he writes a lot about wealth disparities. I don't really agree with some of everything he says. There's actually some books of his I don't like at all, uh, which I think his premises are completely wrong. But in terms of just his writing ability and a lot of the other points, I think he's, he's, he's probably the best conservative writer of all time. I, I, I think he's, 
I think he's 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 he's, he's truly a brilliant person, and he has a a lot of really awesome essays uh, and books. And one of my favorite essays that he wrote was something called a book, an essay called the the influence of geography. And really, in this essay, he goes on about how geography impacts economic systems, trade, culture, language, and and so on. And that seems like a given to most people. Like most people understand that the culture of the Arab Gulf is shaped by huge deserts and scarce resources. Or the geography of England, being an island nation, made it the global leader in naval power and trade for many centuries. And um, I think most people understand that, at least at like kind of a very, uh, at a shallow level or at a very obvious level, of course, that your culture is shaped a lot by your by the ge- geography that you have to deal with. But I just really think the topic is fascinating and it's worth to kind of even poke at and explore at a deeper level or just even use examples. So um, I want to discuss the differences between cultures and, and, and economic development really based on the resources that are available to them. Um, in a nutshell, what this essay is, the, the influence of geography, really the conclusion is that some people hit the geographic jackpot. So AKA Western Europe is an area that ha- is, is highly fortunate in terms of uh, where it's located geography. And then there's some other regions of the world that it's really hard to achieve things because of the geographic realities there. So AKA, one of the big examples is Sub-Saharan Africa, which we've been discussing. Um, there's parts of Europe, Eastern Europe, especially the Balkans regions. Um, there's, there's parts of South America. Um, then there's, you know, there's, there's uh, isolated mountains where it's really difficult to um, sustain, you know, large settlements and, or, or civilization within those areas. And um, I think the, the, the reason why this essay and why Thomas Sowell is such a good writer and this is such a, such a good essay is because it really is the strongest case against kind of racial supremacy, in my opinion, at an intellectual level, not at the moral level. Um, you know, there's, there's some people who do argue for, you know, things like race and IQ and that some races have are naturally just more intelligent based off the based off the genetics of their race. Well, I think this essay kind of puts a hole in those arguments. And, and again, not even talking about it at the moral level. Um, you know, of course, morally, I think most most uh, Americans are like, yeah, of course, you judge a people and the intelligence. There's dumb people and smart people in every, in every race. But I think what's powerful about this is that this is kind of like the intellectual backing where you can, if you're if you're arguing with somebody who believes in like race and IQ and all this stuff, uh, or or not necessarily race and IQ, but who who believes in kind of like a racial supremacy upon one group or another group, I think this is, you know, the the comeback that you would come. Back. This, this is like the the um, the alternative, the objection to that. So. It, you, you've done a lot more research on this, obviously, than I have, <clears throat> and I'm really interested in and fascinated in, in this topic. I'm mostly primarily interested in seeing how is this more of a like rationality for why certain civilizations are better off than others, uh, and I'm curious to see how that how that impacts you know the the arguments of of 
of these like race relations or, or race racial supremacy as you pointed out um but maybe we can just like take a look at a few of the types of peoples that uh that soul outlines and and we could find out together yeah so let's um so i'm going to be like kind of pulling from my own examples and then i'll let you know when i'm reading directly from the essay but let's start with mountain people um there's, there's like a whole chat there's a whole segment and paraphrase paragraph uh, the whole part of this essay that's dedicated just to mountain people and mountains and of course uh, mountains and up uplands have historically isolated people so culturally economically and linguistically mountains have separated people from either you know their primary nation of where the mountains are located and i'll read from Seoul. even when islam became the religion of the rift mountains of morocco this happened centuries after moroccans in, in the lowlands had become muslims Similarly, the English language prevailed in the Scottish lowlands while Gaelic continued to survive in the highlands for generations, just as the Vlach language survived in the Pindus Mountains of Greece long after Greek prevailed in the lower elevations. Mountains and uplands have in fact isolated peoples culturally and economically from the Scottish highlands to the highlands of colonial Ceylon, which in both cases maintained their independence for many years after their respective lowlands were conquered and incorporated into another cultural universe. Hmm. So just think of all the different examples that um, you know, Thomas Sowell, he points out Gaelic continued to survive in the highlands for generations, even after the Scottish lowlands assimilated to English. You know, Gaelic is a Celtic language or Celtic language that was brought to, to Scotland by settlers from Ireland. And it, it, it developed into its own unique dialect over a time that lasted around a thousand years. Gaelic was spoken in the Highlands until even after Scotland was incorporated into the UK. And, and Scotland's incorporated into the UK in, in uh, the early 18th century, 1707. And um, it wasn't until about 100 years, 150 years later from that period... Um, it wasn't until the government essentially banned it in schools in 1872 when people stopped speaking Gaelic in the language in the highlands. You know, this this reminds me a lot of, of some of the prior episodes that we've done on different um, separatist movements. In particular, I'm reminded of the Basque people. I'm reminded of the Basque people in Spain. Uh, the Basques, hang on. <laughs> Sorry, I'm pouring <laughs> that, a drink. That, that picks up every time. <laughs> Sorry. All good. In particular, I'm reminded of the Basque people um, because, you know, they, they, they're the uh, peoples who live uh, in, in the Basque country, which is a region in, in northeast Spain um, and, and southwestern France in the Pyrenees Mountains. And <clears throat> them in particular, you know, part of what drives their separatism is their differentiation that persists even till today. And that differentiation crosses both, of course, language, uh, but also a lot of different cultural aspects. Now, the Basque language in particular, uh, Euskara, is basically unrelated to any other known language, and it's been spoken in that region for at least 2,000 years. And like I said, we, we did an entire episode on the Basque separatist movements in Spain, so if you want more information about that, I'd recommend go and listen to that. But but the, the basic readout from that, that that you'll want to know for this episode is that these Basque terror groups were some of the most violent uh, of Europe in the 20th century when the Spanish government took steps to eliminate their language and try to force assimilate them. So 
obviously not a um, not an excuse to do violent terrorism, but certainly part of the reason why they they decided to take up arms. But there's a bunch of other groups too that I can think of. Um, one being the uh, Amara in South America in the Andes Mountains of Bolivia, Peru, and Chile, and they've been isolated from you know their their respective Spanish cultures for a really long time. Um, there's the Romani people across Europe, uh, otherwise known as, as, as gypsies, basically. Um, Gypsy. The gypsies. Uh, they have a, an incredibly different culture um, than, than their European host nations. And, of course, then there's the Tibetans, right? Uh, that's, a, that's a disputed region also that, that, sh- that has a very distinct language and culture. It's isolated from the rest of China in the Himalayan mountains. The terrain is, is basically helping to preserve the Tibetan language and culture despite, you know, the the mega Chinese government trying to suppress them. It still goes on. Uh, but, I mean, we can go on all day about different types of mountain cultures like this that, that for, you know, for better or for worse are isolated from their, from their dominant cultures and, as a result, retain, end up retaining a very unique characteristic. And it's almost in every single country that has a highlander or a mountain or, or a dominant mountain structure where they, these communities exist. I mean, we're, we're not just, we're talking about Scotland or, 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 or the Basque people, you know, we have the Kurds and the Pashtuns and, and there's just so many different pe- cultures that have been isolated and kind of developed into their own thing outside of like the larger nation. So I think it's, I think it's really interesting how these cultures, um, these, these cultures develop. I'll go back to Seoul. Um, so Isolation has been a key factor in both political autonomy and cultural separatism, as it has been in the in the enduring poverty of the mount, of many mountain regions. In at in the Apennines mountain of southern Italy, out of 123 Lucian villages had no roads whatsoever in 1860. In part of the Pindus Mountains of Greece, even in the 20th century, there were places more accessible to mules and to people on foot than to wheeled vehicles on the and one village acquired like and one village acquired electricity as late as 1956. Damn. In the Rift Mountains of Morocco, snow continued to cut off some communities completely in wintertime even in the late 20th century. Wow. Uh, and you can think of many more impoverished communities and mountains. So, uh, even here in the United States, think of the Appalachians. In the United States, there's a lot of a lot of poverty there. Um, but also the Carpathians in Eastern Europe, uh, the Alps in Europe was home to many poor communities in the 19th century, uh, the Pashtuns, which I think you've already mentioned, but yeah, there's, there's a ton. Um, there seems to be a, a bit of a link between, you know, uh, wealth and, uh, and not being in a mountain is, are there like outside of like Denver, Colorado, are there like mountain people that you can think of that are like the exception to this role? Outside of Denver, Colorado, I mean, even in even in those areas, you're gonna find some kind of hillbilly people um, all all across all across the United States. But I mean, if you want to use modern day examples, um, there's parts of Europe, um, you know, Swiss, you know, Swiss is like Switzerland's highly developed, but mm-hmm. Switzerland wasn't always highly developed. Like Switzerland yeah. was a backwater for a really long time, where a lot of people lived in complete destitute and poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with you know northern Italy in, in the mountain regions. And in France, like, you know, they're, they're developed now, but there were times when they, they were not developed. I think ski tourism really helped them out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the ski tourism and just industrial and mining and things like that, you know, I mean, different periods, it, it, uh, 
they acquire different, you know, boom periods. And, and, you know, after the industrial revolution, when a lot of these mountains, you know, people realize that there's mines and resources that you could, you could extract from them for industrial production. That's when, you know, these communities boom, but not all of them boomed, you know, Mm -hmm. not every, not every region booms. Um, You know, the Pashtun example, you know, Pashtun people, and this is going to sound offensive, but it's just the truth. Pashtun people to me, are basically kind of like Star Wars characters. Like they're so far removed from just modern Western culture that it's almost like just a character from a community from Star Wars or something. They kind of sit on the outer rim. They sit on the outer rim. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard interviews where there's, there's a, you know, people interviewing uh, like Pashtuns, you know, rural backwater people in, in the, in the Hindu Kush. And, they showed them pictures of, of uh, they were showing them pictures of uh, September 11th and they did not know what the hell they were looking at. Mm-hmm. Just zero clue. Like, well, <clears throat> what are they looking at? Um, I mean, yeah. we're talking about the biggest city in the world and the right. biggest event that happened in the 21st century. They had right. zero clue what they were looking at. And then there was another, one of these guys that they're interviewing in, in the backwater of Afghanistan. He comes out and says, what is that, Kabul? We're talking that's about the big, that's the only that's, city he knows. That's about. the only city in the world he knows about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and, and we're talking like the New York City, the largest city, the the throne of the empire, like the throne of the world, the right. capital city of the world. Probably not largest city. I think Had there are bigger ones, but no idea what yeah. this was. And when um, New York City was explained, when nine eleven was explained to them, they were like, "Well, one time a bunch of Arabs flew a building, uh, flew planes." into a village in New York called New York. A village. a village called New York. Not the village in New York, but a village in New York. So, <laughs> yeah, some of these guys in, in uh, these, these backwater uh, people in Afghanistan, they'd never even heard of Arabs. Like, they're like, what the hell is an Arab? And what the hell is New York? So, yeah. I mean, there's, there's just, you know, mountains just have the, the ability to, like, truly just isolate people from from larger urban centers and society side tangent and and but kind of related i watch on youtube kind of frequently this um this channel and i'm blanking on the name here but it pops up on my feed all the time and it's like elders elder tribal members react and it's usually people from that area so pashtuns and 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 other uh folks in, in like central asia but these are folks like just like the ones that you're describing that have very little comprehension of you know, uh, uh, a lot of the things that happen outside of their small sphere and they'll show them things like music videos or like, you know, space documentaries, right. Talking about how big the universe is. And they're just like always mind blown. And I'm always very like, um, you know, I don't look down on them at all, but I, I love how, how they react to things that they're seeing with fresh eyes, things that we kind of take it, take for granted, you know, when we think, oh yeah, the, you know, the earth is revolving around the sun and it's, you know, takes eight minutes for the light to get from the sun to here. And that's how quick it's moving. And I don't know. It's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Um, the, in another essay, it's not this essay, but Thomas Sowell writes, there, there's an excerpt that Thomas Sowell writes saying, in another world, in another universe, if this same person was born, um, you know, was born into a world where he received skills like this, um, or, or basically he, I'm paraphrasing it, but he writes essentially that 
um, this person may have the brain skill, like could or and very well could have the brain capacity and the brain processing ability um, genetically to become the world's top neurosurgeon or become be, become a Nobel Peace Prize or in Nobel, other words, saying a Nobel that everyone has the potential. It's just about the then it's nurture. just that the nurture and just the mm -hmm. the environment that since this person has been born into from a young age. They're just there's just not the opportunity to learn those skills. Um, so again, I mean, I think these are the arguments against like kind of a a supremacist a race that has um, you know a, a an intelligence advantage. And I wouldn't even consider it like an intelligence because there's different forms of intelligence. I'm sure there's you know those Pashtuni folks can teach us a hell of a lot about you know, hunting or gathering or building a house, falconeering, right? I can't do any of that shit. I can't survive in the wilderness whatsoever. Uh, that is true. But they can. You strip, let's just say if there, if shit goes down and um, let's just say if we lose like the, the leisures of modern life, those people are way more, they're, they're well suited to survive that because they don't have the leisures of modern life. Right. We're screwed. Yep. I couldn't survive a day out in alaska i mean if you take your my cell phone from me for more than 15 minutes i start having a bit of an anxiety attack but that might be a personal problem that i should look into <laughs> the other day i was i was um i was in uh, my i was in my yard get off my lawn <laughs> and i was looking at the the bushes and just seeing which ones we i was with uh my uh wife's uncle and he was like telling me which ones i should remove and a bird is in there and it flies out and i'm like oh shit Whoa! <laughs> all flustered like basically like boy. a bear jumped out <laughs> <laughs> the same reaction as if a bear jumped out of the woods and allison's uncle was like what what are you doing it's a bird <laughs> probably <laughs> thought you were such a pussy or something oh like yeah that, right? he thought i was the biggest pussy in the world <laughs> can't believe my niece married such a pussy <laughs> um but yeah city city boy all right, where were back, we? Back to Seoul. So another pattern found among people, another pattern found among mountain people in various parts of the world, at least in recent centuries, has been the production of a wide variety of home-based arts and crafts during the long winter months when time is available. Well, here's another thing that people, like Pashtuni people, can do that I certainly can't. Um, think about like uh, uh, working with uh, textiles, so so creating fabrics. Um, in particular, I, I'm reminded of uh, like wool textiles from the Andes, you know, in, in the harsh winters in the Andes mountains uh, of South America, you know, that's obviously it makes it impossible for those communities to to do any kind of agriculture during the winter months. And so instead, you know, many of these Andes, Andean communities, they they just create wool stuff, you know, like they, they make textile production. So they they focus on their craft there and they create a lot of really highly valued uh, wool textiles. Yeah, good, good, um, I guess, you know, complex handmade goods are created in mountains. It's, it's um, you know, another example would be uh, Swiss wood carvings or um, the types of like tools or like wooden toys from the Bavarian Alps. Mm -hmm. um, the Appalachian Mountains is known for their ceramics. So um, the the Appalachia is like is is known to have like a lot of skilled pot like potterers. I don't know what you call them, potterers, potter, Harry Potter. 
um, clay forgers, clay forgers, but ceramics and and um, I guess especially in in these towns in, in, in North Carolina up by where I guess Mount Jackson is, like where those big ass mountains are in the East Coast or east of the Mississippi are, they're known to have skilled ceramics. Um, whenever I say ceramics, I always think about uh, I took a college course, like you know when I was a senior, and I took a, um, an electoral clo- course on ceramics. That was Did my art course. Pottery? Used made pottery all day. And my ceramics teacher was like, um, what's that guy's name? The the painter with a with the relax. Bob Ross. Bob Ross, yeah. <laughs> he was exactly like happy Bob pots. Ross. We're gonna make some happy accidents in this happy pots. He just had a very soothing voice. He's like, All right everyone, we're going to today we're going to build something of your choice. It could be a ashtray, it could be a tray for change it could be a change tray to put your keys at the end of work (laughs) he spoke um and um every single time he would pick up the whatever someone would call the classroom he would just pick up the phone and be ceramics (laughs) ceramics (laughs) ceramics all right guys we're gonna go back to class and we're gonna get back to making our 19th century, uh, you know, French. Sounds like the kind of guy that <laughs> sounds like the kind of guy that's gonna like watch that one ghost scene on repeat. <laughs> oh yeah, he loved this guy. Loves ceramics, um, and I sucked at it. By the way, my mom right. threw out the gift I gave her. <laughs> it wasn't even worth being a paperweight. She was like, "Oh, what's his guard?" No, she like accepted it when I gave it to her. But like a year later, she forgot it was for me. She's like, "Oh, I gotta throw away this garbage." <laughs> Thanks, thanks, Ma. I made that with my own hands. I would have thrown it away too. It was crappy. Well, be prepared to get a bunch of crappy arts and crafts from your kid when when they grow up. So and you know what? After a year, a year, I'll throw them away too. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. (laughs) I'm joking. Or would I? I don't know. Someone tells me what the correct parenting mood is. (laughs) Move is. Um, All right, so... Um, why don't we, why don't we talk about like, cause it's something that we haven't really touched on for mountain peoples, like how tough they are. I mean, the, the, the wilderness is so rugged and, and it's very unforgiving. Um, and it, it, in my opinion, it kind of breeds a toughness that I think, you know, lowland people don't necessarily have. Yeah. So this pulls me, it's that way into the next quote I have. So the toughness required to survive in many barren and backward mountain regions has produced renowned fighting men. In many parts of the world, so yeah, we're talking about the Pashtuns. Pashtuns, you know, they're known to, you know, like a fight. 
Yeah, I mean, they've uh, kicked how many world empires' asses in wars? Yeah. <laughs> they're, I heard they're like a good fight. <laughs> um, some, so, yeah, some of the most elite troops in the British Empire were in the elite Scottish Highland uh, regiments and also the Gurkha units from Nepal. Um, some of the big elite units in the Ottoman Empire were the Albanians and the Riffians of the, of the mountains of northern Morocco. Um, the, the Riffians were also used as mercenaries in the Spanish Civil War on the side of Franco. Um, Swiss mercenaries played a significant role in European wars from, you know, before nation states were formed, basically every single state in your, uh, or every single type of, you know, state structure, kingdom or principality or lord, everyone, no one had standing armies, everyone hired mercenaries. And a lot of these mercenaries came from, Swiss, you know, what is now Switzerland, the state of Switzerland. And it's estimated between the 15th century in the 19th century so all the wars between like the 30 years wars the religious wars of europe the napoleonic wars the italian wars um all these like major wars that break out within that time period over a million swiss mercenaries are estimated to have been killed in those wars so in fighting on behalf of you know other and this is a 400 year period but you know fighting on behalf of other states i'd love to know what their kd spread is like right how many people did they kill <laughs> yeah I, I mean just think just i mean a million have been killed just think about how many have served or fought so right. we're talking about probably you know 20 over 20 million right swiss mercenaries have Are, fought aren't the swiss um guards still guarding the pope in vatican city like right now yeah that's a thing still Right, <laughs> they still they still are. I don't know if you have to be from Switzerland to do that. I to think be in the Swiss Guard. To be in the Swiss Guard, I'll Google. I don't, that I don't think it's a requirement. I think it's more of just a title thing. But um, it's you know uh, they they got funny outfits, but I wouldn't fuck with those halberds that they carry. So <laughs> they also have guns. Yeah, <laughs> they they have guns underneath those um those robes, those goofy robes. Yeah, they're not just um gonna you know stab somebody with a halberd okay gonna... side tangent star wars reference do you know the praetorian guard those red fucking stormtrooper looking things that guard the emperor and all of the important sith characters in the movies i think so okay i think maybe the swiss guards came from the mountains the the praetorian guards came from the mountains too they're they're like the most badass of all the fighters apparently because they're the ones that have to protect the emperor so they're probably mountain people Anyway, my weird tangent over. Um, <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. No sweat. Um, okay, well, that could be, if there's a mountain planet in Star Wars, maybe they're from it. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, mining is uh, another thing um, that could be related to toughness. I mean, this, you know, just, you don't have to be a fighting guy to be a, a like, tough guy. Um, but it also uh, applies to, you know, a bunch of other uh, trades as well. Um the, the minerals that are found in a lot of these mountain regions create whole societies around them that are really good at mining. And those skilled laborers are often, you know, imported to other countries for their technical expertise. Uh, for example, the Germans in the Hartz Mountains uh, were renowned as miners. And so they were in demand in regions like Spain and the Balkans and Bohemia to work on uh, the mines of other countries. Yeah. I mean, they, they kind of were develop these skills that were highly in demand to other regions that had that had um had mountains so um i'll quote 
soul. So in geographical terms, mountains and highlands in general are important not only as obstacles in themselves, but also as features with both positive and negative effects on other parts of the environment. On the po <clears throat> so on the positive side of mountains and highlands, um, they help regulate the flow of rivers and streams by melting snow, therefore providing a steady supply of water. They also make, um, you know, irrigated agriculture possible in areas where rainfall alone would not be sufficient. Now, on the negative side, rivers that originate in higher elevations, they must plunge, you know, they plunge more sharply downward, often with rapids and waterfalls. And the more waterfalls and the more rapids, and one of the reasons why in, in Africa, it's so you know, going through the river system is so difficult is because there's so many waterfalls there. Um, it just makes it a lot, a lot less navigable. Now, um, mountains, mountain ranges also, they drastically impact rainfall patterns. So when, when moisture-laden air blows across a mountain range, it is not uncommon for the rainfall on the side where the moisture originates to be several times as great in the rain shadow on the other side of the mountain, where the air goes after it has lost most of its moisture while rising over the crest. So, as a result, agricultural opportunities can vary significantly depending on which side of the mountain people are located on. That is true. That is so true. So, you know, an example would be like, um, you know, in, in southern Italy, the Apennines Mountains rainfall on the western slopes can be up to 10 times greater than on the eastern slopes um, another example is in, in the in the american pacific uh, in the northwest precipitation on the west side of the cascade mountains can be up to 10 times greater than on the east side of the columbia plateau i got one for you and i didn't get a chance to show you this when you were down in puerto rico next time you come i'll have to show you but if Puerto Rico, small island, right, but in this right through the center is a pretty big mountain range. And on the northern side it gets a hell of a lot more rainfall than the southern side. It's just the way that the, you know, weather patterns blow. In the north side, it's such a verdant green color, like super, super green. And pretty much the moment you cross on the highway, cross that mountain, everything turns a kind of like bright yellow. And it's because it's a lot more arid and it loses a lot of the moisture and rainfall that the north gets. So it's something that I've actually experienced myself, like, frequently. It's pretty wild how that works. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's crazy how much mountains impact the, the, just the, the ecological system around it. Mm -hmm. um, I'll quote Sol again. So different sides of a mountain range often have not only different amounts of rainfall, but also different slopes. This has had important military implications where the people on one side have found it easier to climb the gentler slope and then descend upon the other side to invade their neighbors. <laughs> the locations and shapes of mountain passes have also had other military and consequently cultural impacts. The greater ease of Roman soldiers' entry through the mountain passes into Gaul as compared to the more difficult mountain route into German regions meant that Roman culture reached Gaul first and later filtered secondhand into the hands of inhabited by Germans. So anyone familiar with Roman history knows that it took, you know, they, they pretty much conquered Gaul in the era of Julius Caesar. They didn't really, they never really, they never finished conquering Germania, but, you know, they got, at its peak, it was, what, 181 uh, AD with, when Marcus Aurelius was, was uh, emperor. So it took them almost two centuries later after the death of, or over, two centuries 
um, after Julius Caesar died uh, to to um, you know expand that work you know that far outward north in, in Germania. Now um, we can start. We can want to keep on talking about mountains, or we want to move on to yeah. No, we can, coastal. Yeah, let's do some coastal ones. I'm interested to hear what he says about that because I'm currently in a coastal region. Well, I'll bring up the quote. So another culturally distinctive group are coastal people. And I will quote, in touch with more of the outside world, they have usually been more knowledgeable and more technologically and socially advanced than interior peoples. As with, with, as with other geographically related social patterns, these are not racial, but locational. Sometimes the coastal peoples are racially or ethnically different. Germans being particularly represented on the coastal fringes of Russia at one time. For example, but the differences between the interior and the coastal people remain even when they are both of the same racial stock. Thus, in the Middle Ages, the largely Slavic population of the Adriatic port city of Dubrovnik, Dubrovnik was culturally far more advanced in literature, architecture, and painting as well as in modern business methods than the Slavs of the interior hinterlands. In tropical Africa, likewise, the coastal peoples more in touch with outside influences were sufficiently more advanced technologically and organizationally to become enslavers of African farther Africans farther inland. One symptom of the importance of coastal areas as cultural crossroads is that many of the lingua francis of the world have originated in such settings, whether in the Levant or on the Swahili coast of Africa or in the ports of China and the Southeast Asia. And, and Southeast Asia. Hmm. So, um, obvi- the obvious example, the obvious advantages of being located on a coastal region, I mean, they're pretty transparent. You just, I mean, why do they call Middle America Middle America? Because, yeah, there's no sea access. Sea access. And, you know, when you're on the sea, you obviously have more access to trade and, and other cultures mm-hmm. and technology advancements. Now, um, one of the biggest geographic features that impacts um, the types of societies that are possible really is the quality of soil. And there's a lot of different things that go into the quality. Let me tell you about soil. <laughs> Let's talk about dirt. Let me talk about lawn care, children. <laughs> Man, it would be great to fucking segue that into an advertiser, right? Yeah, right. A lawn care advertiser. Get lawn no care listening. from miracle Grow. I don't know. What's, what's a fucking brand that does? I don't know. I'm not going to give free advertisement. Yeah. Um, But... Fertile regions, fertile regions, um, allow for a pattern of intergenerational farming, meaning farms are passed down through the same families through generations, really just creating the basis for civilization. So some regions that, some regions have soil that quickly depletes. And this prevents the development of cities and cultural advancements that are largely associated with urban life right because those those that agriculture powers a lot of the you know cities and and urban centers without it you can't support quite as many people you know they all got to eat something right um i want to talk about slash and burn agriculture while we're on the topic here there's this farming method where where land is cleared uh by cutting and burning vegetation and 
and it sounds counterintuitive, but but actually the ashes from the burned vegetation are often used as fertilizer for the soil. So interestingly, burning your crops is a good thing sometimes. And after several years of, of doing this, of, of cultivating this, the soil's fertility eventually declines and the land is left to regenerate while farmers move on, you know, to clear some other area and cultivate uh, elsewhere. Uh, this method is, of course, called slash and burn agriculture, and it was very common in tropical regions of Africa and Asia. See, like these high temperatures increase the rate of the, you know, the decomposition of organic matter, the stuff that's going to fertilize the soil, which leads to, you know, a, a really rapid breakdown of, of the available nutrients that are in the soil. And heavy rainfall, you know, if you add to that, uh, the high heat, heavy rainfall can wash away a lot of those soil nutrients, uh, in particular nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, which are all evidently very important for growing stuff. I wouldn't know because I'm not a farmer, but I've read it and it seems to make sense to me. So basically the water will wash away all of the good stuff, you know, and the high heat is already making, uh, making it more, um, making that stuff go away a lot faster. Um, and in areas with you know, a lot of precipitation, so a lot of rain, uh, the soil can also become kind of acidic, uh, which can also decrease the uh, availability of, of certain nutrients that are needed to grow crops. So clearing and burning forests to create new agricultural fields, what this can sometimes do is is make those problems worse by by removing the natural vegetation that that would normally help to re replenish and recycle those soil nutrients yeah um it's in a lot of a lot of um it, it's very common in like in um hotter temperatures uh in subtropic temperatures um but it was also practiced in in in, in europe and um i think it was practiced a lot in eastern europe and in um, modern day russia a lot but uh it's not i mean it's i guess it's pretty smart and intuitive for the short short term but not for long-term sustainability right. when you it comes to you know, development of society because you have to move. You have to move within five, six years. Right. Yeah. I mean, no intergenerational wealth there. You know, because you got to pick up and move everything. Well, another another group that, and we'll move on to our next group of people, the steps people, which we like to talk about. We've had uh, we, we've done episodes on the Scythians, but they're always a fun topic. The Gorkins. The the Gorkins. They're step people. The Gorkins are step people. You are right. Or they're mountain people. There's a combination of they're, both. They're, they're both. They're both. They're mountain people and steppe people. Mm -hmm. They we, also like to believe that they're coastal people because they claim a property in Kiribati. So technically they can also be coastal people. I don't know. They are coastal people as well. They are all three. Um, but steppe people. So steppe people are the people who live in the Dothraki. Mm -hmm. The Mongols. The, Mong the, Doth the Dothraki. It's funny how... When I think of step people, the first thing I think of is Dothraki people. Right. Which Dothraki is just, first, Mongols second. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> of real communities. I think of more Doth Game of Thrones fake communities <laughs> than real people. Like, That's oh, how we make like sense step, of the world. Like step people? Oh, you mean like the Dothraki? You mean like Khal Drogo? Yeah, him. <laughs> okay. You mean the guys that all re respond in the final episode or the right. second final episode? <laughs> whatever, when they all kill themselves and... <laughs> In a pointless charge, and God, then the episodes, sucked. and then they came back to life in the second episode. I guess I'm, I mean I'm glad they came back because they were pretty cool. But 
didn't really make too much sense for the story. No. Plot hole. Sorry, Game of Thrones people. If you're not Game of Thrones people, you wouldn't get it. But if you guys aren't Game of Thrones people, what are you doing? Right. Um, actually, I don't blame you because the last season sucked. Well, it's... it's... There they uh, maybe, go again. Maybe they'll retcon it with some with some spinoffs. I'm hearing about a John a John Snow series that'll that, happen. You know that's gonna post. suck. Well, we'll see. Not to be a cynical asshole, but Buckwheat. He was so cool and begin. I mean, they took he kind of sucked in the beginning of the show. I don't want it. And then they made him cool by season six or season five, and you're like, oh, John Snow's cool. And then they made him suck again. Right. Became like, a huge pussy. It's like, oh. Yeah. McQueen. Uh, okay, step people. So, um, deserts and steppes, such as the ones in Central Asia and also in North Africa and in Arabia and the Middle East. So, they produced a lot of societies on the move. So, um, areas like Iraq, um, there's a lot of movement in places like Iraq where it was kind of a border land. There's a lot of conquering going on. Um, you know, the Arabs were people on the move a lot. Um, so just speaking in terms of the desert, and then in Central Asia, you have groups like the Mongols, the Scythians, and the Huns. And these were groups that, um, you know, would conquer people. And, you know, they the, these societies relied on, on um, animal husbandry and, and um, hunting and raiding. And were often on the move with their livestock. And they were always on the search of pastures and water sources. And in many cases, they would move season by season. So their mobility, and these people became all like expert horse people, horse gods, um, allowed them to avoid being tied down to one location. And it made it easier for them to, um, you know, not only evade enemies, but also just conquer new territories so these these uh, nomads have included you know the great conquerors of all time. So Genghis Khan, Attila, Attila the Hun, um, the the founder of uh, Babur, um, the founder of the Mughal Empire in India. He came from like the Central Asian steppes to conquer India. Um, the uh, Drago, Karl Drogo, Karl Drogo, Karl Drogo, of course, <clears throat> great conqueror of human of, of real history. <laughs> um, we gotta make a doc. We gotta make a Gorkistani, um, you know, step conquer. Yeah, no, I'm, the, I'm the sure backstory. there is. I just haven't read about it yet. Yeah. So, um, now when geographic features such as mountains and rivers, climate and soil are viewed in combination, their significance becomes even greater. So the effect of rainfall in agriculture. For, for instance, depends not only on the amount of rainfall, but also on the soil's ability to retain water. So an example would be a moderate amount of rainfall can sustain a flourishing agricultural sector on some soils, um, but at the same amount of rainfall on a geography with limestone won't retain the water. Then limestone, the water doesn't just sits there and then it evaporates or seeps into the ground. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do anything. There's no, there's no practical use for it. Um, another example would be if a river flows through a largely desolate or inaccessible area, so like the Yukon River, where it's obviously freezing cold and it's desolate and there's nothing there. Why would there be anything there? It's up in the middle of 
you know, northern Canada right. um, or the Amazon River where there is development in certain parts of the Amazon River, but a lot of it's through jungle and rainforest and you can't really do anything there because of the risk of disease and just the terrain. You because can't, it's the fucking jungle. Because it's just, it's the rainforest and there's piranhas and stuff. Giant snakes. And, and giant snakes. Things that want to scary ass shit. <laughs> It doesn't have the same economic value as the Rhine River that flows through cities like uh, Rotterdam in the Netherlands or Cologne in Germany or Bonn or Dusseldorf or Strasbourg or Basel in France. The Rhine River hit all those major industrial centers um, or the Thames River or River Thames. I don't know. I think people say both interchangeably. Thames. The Thames River or River Thames. Um, through southern England that transports goods through London. Um, What creates economic development is waterways which connect productive regions together. So in Russia, for example, the large rivers in Siberia are not as important as the Volga, the Don, and Kama rivers, which are major transportation routes and sources for, for, for water and agricultural um, I mean, the large rivers in Siberia are bigger than all the other rivers in Russia, besides the Volga, of course. But, I mean, there's, you know, there it's just more, they're just in Siberia. Yeah, there's nothing in Siberia to transport. <laughs> it's basically a, the, yeah. like the Yukon. Yeah. Um, in addition, harbors that are not as deep or not as wide, nor as well sheltered as other harbors may, you know, nevertheless become busy ports. If they represent, you know, the only outlets for productive regions in the vicinity. So um, just like uh, Genoa in northwestern Italy or Mombosa in East Africa, East Africa, um, I'll quote directly from Seoul. Sometimes a variety of favorable geographical features exist in combination within a given region as in northwestern Europe and sometimes virtually all are lacking as in parts of tropical Africa while still other parts of the world have some of these favorable features, but not others. The consequences include not only variations in economic well-being, but more fundamentally, variations in the skills and experience, the human capital of the people themselves. Given the enormous range of combinations of geographical features, the peoples from different regions of the earth have had highly disparate opportunities to develop particular schools and work experience. International migrations then put these people with disparate skills, aptitudes, and outlooks in proximity to one another and in competition with it with another in other lands. While geographical influences may distinguish one cultural universe from another, even another located nearby, the existence of similar geographical influences and similar social patterns in distant regions of the world, marauding and feuds among mountain men, for example, means that such patterns are not national character or racial traits but are international in scope and geographical in origin. Nor are these patterns necessarily racial characteristics, even in a limited sense of characteristics differing from one race to another for genetic, for non-genetic reasons. In short, geographical influences cut across national borders and racial lines, producing similar effects in different countries and different effects in various regions of the same country or among culturally different members of the same race. This is not to say that there are no national cultural influences. Clearly, clearly there are. Language, religion, and political traditions are just some of the cultural values holding together nations composed of peoples subjugate, 
subject, subjected to disparate and other influences. The point here is simply that a recognition of distinct cultural patterns, whether originating in geography, history, and otherwise, is not the same as belief in national character or racial traits. These things may overlap or even be congruent in some cases, but they may also be quite separate. While continents or other regions of the world may not, may not be geographically unique nor homogeneous within themselves, nevertheless, the ensemble of geographical influences operating in one region of the world has differed significantly from the geographical and other influences operating elsewhere. These differences are not confined to, to their original locations, but are also embedded in the culture of peoples migrating from these people, these different regions of the world. Okay, well, that's that's kind of the payoff that I was looking for earlier on in the episode. I wanted to see how does Thomas Sowell kind of wrap all this together and and <clears throat> what what conclusions can we draw from it? And so far, I'm on board. I think it, it is, you know, obviously racists are hard to talk to in general, but if you if you just had a geographic conversation with them and lay it out in the way that Thomas Sowell does, I wonder if they'd... Uh, have a difference of opinion or if they would kind of come along to the come along to the reality that that you know a lot of these differences between quote-unquote races are actually just opportunity differences and you know that could be positive opportunities or negative opportunities that is well yeah i think with most race and IQ, like most you know most race iq you know most people who are like yeah your race and genetics kind of determines what your IQ is capable of being. Therefore, which capable is your ability to, you know, be successful in life and do complex stuff and create complex systems. I think that's the argument. And they look at statistics of things like IQ. And of course, there's different IQ levels in different races. It's just any groups, any, any group is going to have a higher or lower IQ if you just test them within a group. But again, like IQ is is still a test it's has is um it's also just one test it's just it's just it's still it's just one test of intelligence and it's not there's many factors that go into being able to, to score high on an iq test i think when you talk to or when you have conversations with like race or they call themselves race realist um they want they wouldn't call themselves racist i they would be, they, <laughs> well they, i mean yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> but they wouldn't call themselves racist. They would call themselves race realist. Yeah. Um, they would say something like, you know, they would use those statistics, but they don't take into account the kind of the geographic. And, and also, we're, it's not something we're not talking about in this episode because it would be too much, are the political systems. Because right. also it's the political and economic systems. Right. If, I mean, look at East Germany, West Germany, look at North Korea, South Korea. Look what look what systems prevailed. Mm -hmm. Right, the systems that adopted communism fucking sucked, and the systems that adopted you know capitalism, and you know just uh, did much better. Right. People people are people tried to escape from east from East Germany to West Germany. Right, no one tried to escape over the Berlin Wall to East Germany. No one's trying <laughs> no one. to escape from South Korea to North Korea. It's always the opposite because right. the political systems are better. Right. Nevertheless, they're the same peoples, right? They're, they're the, same, the same racial stock. And, so. and just, you know, the perfect example would just be looking at North Korea and South Korea. Look at North Korea when the lights turn off. <laughs> it's it's dark, Everything is dark besides Pyongyang. Right. And North Korea 
was way more economically developed before the 1950s. Like right. South Korea used to be a desolate, backwater, rural, poor, underdeveloped area for forever. And then after the Japanese put all their money when they colonized Korea, they put all their money and all their industrial base was in the north. So that was the more economical region. Well, after World War II, and after the two nations separated after the Korean War, I mean, one of the reasons is because the U.S. actually kind of obliterated every single North Korean city. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, um, that is one of the reasons. But South Korea was, you know, a military dictatorship until the seventies. It was extremely poor. But then when these nations started adopting, you know, when their economic, really, when North Korea started getting aid from Soviet Union, and when South Korea. Uh, adopted, you know, Western political systems and economic systems. Um, you know, one system is now making cars and cell phones and cameras and complex things and competing on a global level. And the other is, um, you know, incredibly poor and incomplete destitute and needs to, you know, do some sort of nuclear blackmail to do sanction relief. So it's... Or just get some food to eat. Yeah. Um, I think in North Korea, you're right, is, is a very interesting topic in that respect because... When you talk about how the Japanese invested heavily in the North for their industrial manufacturing, there were geographic and practical reasons for that, which is which is uh, part of the opportunity argument that Thomas Sowell is making here, right? So there was more uh, uh, opportunity at the time to develop in the North than there was in the South for geographic reasons. Um, it wasn't until later that you know global capitalism takes hold in the United States and, and its allies start backing the South and really propping that up, that the, that the South was able to overcome that. Nevertheless, we're talking about the same peoples, right? It's just Koreans, right? They're all roughly, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's the different, language. different 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 um, uh, subgroups of Koreans, I'm sure, uh, and I'm not necessarily an expert on that, but uh, generic, generally speaking, you know, they're, they're all kind of the same person, same type of people. So, you know, how do we make sense of the, you know, who ran statistics today on like literacy in North Korea versus literacy in South Korea, these racial, um, what did you call them? Racial realists, uh, the racists would assume based on those statistics that North Koreans are dumb and South Koreans are smart. Right. Um, but that's not, that's just like such a superficial, you know, output. Well, I think North Korea, their IQ level are, are just as high as South Koreans, but it's more, but it's like you look at their standard of living and their standard of living is what is, I don't know what the exact IQ is of North Korea, but I think they're relatively similar to that of South Korea. But if you look at just like the state of living, there's, there's, there's no, there's really not many worse countries to live in on earth mm -hmm. than North Korea. So it makes you if, wonder. If not the worst country to live in. Makes you wonder. Political if, systems. Makes you wonder if, if we had invested in the same way that we did in, in South Korea and, and propped them up other, you know, uh, emerging countries. I don't want to say any for, for <laughs> so I don't get in trouble here, but you can imagine a third world country in your mind and just imagine that we put all of our might into upscaling and upscaling those well, we, well, we do that too and it doesn't work out look <laughs> well, at afghanistan and look at bosnia and look at there's there's other countries where we do we, we prop up financially yeah, I mean, I, and I the think systems the, just don't work the afghanistan one is interesting and it does tie back to the geography of it again it's because of all of the you know mountain regions all those mountain peoples it's hard to assimilate them all under one banner because it just doesn't make sense it's too hard they're too isolated it's too difficult to move product and 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 resources 
even you know from one mountain range to the next you know and there's no there's no kind of like like master culture someone might take it the wrong way but there's no super super culture is the correct word right. there's no super culture that kind of um assimilates people into you know mass education there correct but again uh, we're, we're just talking about geography here right so the reason why i was able to work in south korea is is the reason why it wasn't able to work in afghanistan yeah Again, exactly. It ties back to geography. It's a combination of things. It's not all geography. It's a combination. But geography it certainly plays is, a pretty is, big part. Is, 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 it's a really, really important part when you're talking about wealth disparities. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. So um, now I want to talk about, for the remainder of the time, I want to talk about the geography of Europe because the geography of Europe is really advantageous. So especially Western Europe, oh, let me let me isolate that. The geography of Western and Northern Europe, it's the most geographically fortunate part of the world in terms of like kickstarting your, your society, in terms of having the natural resources needed for, for development of modern industri- for, for a modern industrial economy. Um, so iron or uh, coal deposits are concentrated in the Roar, uh, in Wales, in Sweden, in Alsace-Lorraine, in which France and Germany fought, you know... Desperately. Desperately for. for. Yeah. Um, the broad coastal plains of Northern Europe have also provided the people of that region with prime agricultural land and navigable rivers that connect... Um, other regions with each other, and specifically other developed regions with each other. Europe has peninsulas, islands, natural harbors, giving these societies access to sea. Um, and then Western Europe has mild, milder winters due to the Gulf Stream. Now, um, if you look at London, for example, London is about 3,500 miles north of New York, but has milder, milder winters. Um, New York is super cold in the winter. Yep. New York gets a, we had actually a pretty warm winter, um, you know, probably related to climate change, but, um, the, I mean, when I was growing up, New York winters, you would, you would expect it to be a week or two weeks of it being below 10, below 10 degrees. Right. 
That's uh, part of the reason why I left Puerto Rico for Puerto Rico. <laughs> it gets super cold. In London, it doesn't get that cold. Yeah. Um, it doesn't get the... Same thing with Berlin. Berlin's even uh, kind of like on that same plane um, farther east, of course. But yeah, it's 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 weird. But that, that has a lot to do with like the jet stream and shit. Like now, now we're talking about like meteorology or what, what's the word? Yeah, meteorology. Uh, study weather. Yeah, I mean that that ties into geography though, because geography impacts weather. Correct. So, um, so London is 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 north of New York by a significant amount, but it's it's just just as um, it's 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 warmer, or at least has milder winters. When not all year round, it's not warmer. London doesn't get because New York gets super hot. Doesn't get super hot in London. Um, you know, if it gets ninety degrees or whatever, and that isn't Celsius. Was that forty degrees Celsius? I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm an American. <laughs> and last summer they were like, it's so hot. The, the English government is banning people on pools because enough people don't have the life jackets. <laughs> um, um, London's also located on the banks of uh, the Thames River, um, which flows into the North Sea. So it provides london access to the atlantic ocean and the rest of the world um the river thames is deep um it's a wide river it's navigable by, by large ships it allows goods to be transported easily from city to city in addition the thames valley has some of the most fertile soil in all of england um when you look at paris it's located right on the seine river Listen. yeah right in the center of the country and it's on very fertile land as well which made it a really important trade hub the the river provided access to the atlantic ocean and also the english channel um you know through the river system paris had access to normandy to the north and then burgundy to the south um the seine what is it pronounced seine seine the seine Mm -hmm. the seine river it also connects other major french waterways such as the loire in the Rhine and the Rhone, which um, you know just further expands Paris's river access to other parts of the country. So, see, these geographic features are what made Paris into Europe's really primary megacity for centuries. Um, you know, Paris is Paris is Europe's largest city still, I believe. I don't know if London has surpassed it or not. Might have, I forget, but you know, Paris and London are the two largest cities. I guess it depends on what you consider the city, right? There's, there's, you know, or a suburban outlying areas that are still considered well, greater Paris or greater London. I, I guess what, what makes Paris unique is that Paris is kind of like this. If you look at France, it's kind of like the heart, like literally the heart right, that, right plants, the that, mm-hmm. that pumps blood into the rest of the country. And, and Parisian culture or Paris was really able to export its elite culture meaning like the educated class cultural to make this nation state like they they kind of they were able to uh export parisian culture to a very wide periphery um you know and you know that that elite culture you know evolves into the primary center of the state when you compare a place like france that is very that's very centralized or you know paris centralized um you can compare it with a place like italy and you see a lot of differences between Italy and France in terms of geography. And this really explains their political histories. Italy throughout the medieval Renaissance era didn't have this dominant megacity. You know, of course it hit Rome, 
in ancient times, but in the medieval Renaissance eras, it never had this like master city or this one city on the hill. It had many different city-states. The reason why is Italy is geographically disjointed due to its mountainous terrain, with the Alps in the north and the Apennines running the length of the peninsula. And this made travel and communication very difficult. Therefore, these isolated city-states were self-governing. And these uh, prosperous city-states like Venice and Genoa, were, which were located on the Mediterranean, they, made, they became these major trade hubs and they became extremely self-sufficient. This is one of the reasons why Italy was extremely fragmented for much of its history. You know, the, the Italian nation state is this really just this brand new concept that's, that's existed less than 200 years. And um, there's never really had been this single power able to dominate the entire peninsula. And even now, if you look at Italy, there's parts of Italy that are super poor, um, you know, outside of like major metropolitan areas, mm-hmm. there are parts of Italy that are really, really poor. Uh, if you go to Naples, Naples, I've used this. I said that Naples looks, Naples, Italy looks like if Tampa Bay had an earthquake. <laughs> it does. No offense if you're from Naples, but you can be honest. It kind of looks like that. Um, but um, where was I? But to pull this back, though, it's not just Mediterranean cities, though, uh, cities on the coastline that, d- that do well there. There's also cities like Florence and Milan, which were two of the most prosperous cities in the world, you know, during the Renaissance period. Uh, Florence was at the crossroads of the major trade routes, which linked Rome to northern Europe. It also sat on the fertile um, Arno Valley on the bank of the Arno River. And then Milan was, is, is uh, you know, is Milan, Milan is Italy's most industrious city, is, is located on the trade routes between the Alps and the Mediterranean, and along with the, the east-west route that linked Venice and Genoa. It's on the Po Valley, and the Po Valley is, is you know, the, the most industrial region of Italy. It's also the most fertile region of all of Italy. You know, the, 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 the valley, that, that valley that is formed by the Po River, it deposits a large amount, amounts of nutrient-rich sediment into the valley floor. And at the same time, the Alps and the Apennines, they protect it from harsh winds, providing a temper, you know, a temperate climate. Um, you know, I think maybe the biggest factor when it comes to Europe in terms of just like the geographic jackpot was how close they were or how the Gulf Stream impacted it, which we briefly talked about in, in the case of London's climate. Um, the Gulf Stream is a warm ocean current that originates in the Gulf of Mexico. It flows across the Atlantic Ocean and reaches Western Europe, um, specifically the British Islands and Scandinavia. And the warm water carried by the Gulf Stream helps to moderate the climate of these regions, making them milder and, and, and wetter than they would be otherwise. So this has a significant impact on the region's agricultural um, and also just, you know, therefore industry and economy. Uh, in particular, the Gulf Stream helps to keep ports in Western Europe free of ice. It also supports fishing 
the fishing industry where there's it's just a more suitable environment for for larger schools of fish so the climate in the gulf stream it um it impacts it's really beneficial to the atlantic facing european nations but as you go east those advantages you know start to lessen um you know the further east you go the colder the winters are and the more days the, the rivers are ultimately frozen and many countries and societies in eastern europe are landlocked making it difficult for them to engage in international trade also in the east you have the eurasian steppe right next to you and of course the eurasian steppe is great for transporting goods between the east and the west um but you know this large you know the eastern steppes this humongous vast grassland region that stretches from the the Danube river in romania danube. the danube river in you in romania and you to and um and um the um you know the ural mountains in russia it served as a super highway for foreign invaders from the east so that's why you know this you know all these areas were conquered by the ultimately conquered by the 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 mongols for centuries now um i think the the one of the most uh, interesting examples of of how geography can like really give you uh you know the the uh the wrong end of the stick is the Balkans. So the poorest part of Europe has always been the Balkans. Um, well, some of the reasons why these regions have historically been very poor is due to their geography. So the terrain of the Balkans is very mountainous. It has a limited amount of arable land available. The Balkans are located in, there, in an area where uh, there's several tectonic plates um, so there's been, it's been an area that has had bad earthquakes. I'm reminded that one time you had a gaffe and you said Teutonic plants on the show. Do you remember that? <laughs> Teutonic plants. <laughs> and I made a composite image of that. Teutonic plants. I gotta, I gotta run back and, and use AI to create a new image for that. I said Teutonic plants. Yeah. One, one episode you were trying to say tectonic plates and you said Teutonic plants. So I made a, I made an image of a Teutonic knight riding one of those, uh, one of those uh, um, piranha plants from Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> That'd be a good shirt. <laughs> Teutonic plants. Yeah. <laughs> Did I say that we have a merch site? Oh, yeah. Well, we're about to have a merch site. Yeah. It's not dropped yet, but we're gonna we're gonna make some cool stuff. So let us know in your reviews. Teutonic, Teutonic plants. Teutonic plants shirt. Well, would you buy one of those? How about a mug? With Teutonic plants. How about on a it? fanny pack? How about a fanny? Would you buy a fanny pack? Any bro history fanny pack? Let us know in your uh, reviews. What would you buy if you could buy anything and we could make it? Fanny pack. Fanny pack. <laughs> um, okay. So back to Teutonic plants. <laughs> um, there's a lot of earthquakes or there has been a lot of earthquakes in the past. Um, in the river system in the Balkans. So in the Balkans, most of the rivers flow inland, meaning they meaning that they they don't empty directly into the sea. Instead, they flow into other rivers or lakes within the region. This happens when terrain around the river source is higher than the surrounding areas, and the river is unable to flow out of the basin due to the, to, to the, the lack of downhill slope. So the mountain ranges act as a barrier preventing water 
from flowing outward and it leads to a system of rivers that flow into the peninsula's interior rather than the surrounding seas. Um, then there's the coastlines. So the Balkan regions has a rugged coastline with steep cliffs and few natural harbors, which make it really difficult to build uh, to build ports. The the coastline has um, you know many islands and narrow inlets. Small islands can create these narrow channels that are really difficult to navigate. And if a ship isn't careful, it can it can uh, you know run aground on shallow water near the islands. Um, in addition. Small islands can create currents that are really unpredictable for danger and, and, and dangerous for ships. Yep, and and while we're talking about ships, I think weather is a is a really big factor in this as well. We were talking about the Balkans, you know, so the weather in the Balkans can be super super harsh, you know, as opposed to you know different areas like Florence and Milan, where the mountains kind of protect it and shelter it from that really uh, strong winds. The Balkans, located of course in the southern eastern part of Europe are surrounded by high mountains but also the seas and that location makes it susceptible to a lot of these cold air masses that come in from northern and eastern europe and of course the black sea region these cold air masses they basically mix with the warm air from the mediterranean which causes heavy heavy snowfall and of course strong winds to boot and that really has a big factor uh in in a lot of things frankly yeah they call it the the siberian high i think Mm -hmm. Um, the, the weather that comes from northern Russia, um, which affects, you know, essentially like most of Asia and, and Eastern Europe. But, um, yeah, I mean, the Balkans is an example. I want to use the, the case study of the Balkans versus Western Europe to kind of explain. Because, I mean, theory, the Balkans should be set because the Balkans is near the Black Sea and near Constantinople and, you know, has access to all these other societies. But... Um, their their geographic reality just doesn't when you look at it closer it's it, there's a lot of there's there's many many disadvantages and I think it's one of the primary reasons why in in, in the Balkans the Balkans is significantly uh, poorer than than the rest of Europe and under and underdeveloped for that matter as yeah well. mm-hmm. so one more final quote from Seoul and I think I'll wrap this up and I think to tie the bow on it bows on it ties of bows on it you want, to t- you want me to take this you've been talking for a minute sure all right so uh these sharp differences in geographical advantages have been reflected not only in great disparities in wealth among the different regions of europe but also in similarly large differences in skills industrial experience and whole ways of life among the peoples of this regions thus when the people of the Mediterranean migrated to the United States or to Australia, for example, they did not bring with them the industrial skills or the whole modern way of life found among German or English immigrants. What they did bring with them was a frugality born of centuries of struggle for survival in the less productive lands and waters of the Mediterranean, and a power of endurance and persistence born of the same circumstances. The ability of the Italian immigrants to endure poor and cramped living conditions and to save out of very low wages, which caused comment among those around them, whether in European countries or in the Western Hemisphere or Australia, had both geographical and historical roots. Similar characteristics have marked various other Mediterranean peoples, but the Italians are a particularly interesting group to study because they include not only the Mediterranean people of the south, but also people from the industrial world of the Po River Valley in the north, 
whose geographic, economic, and cultural characteristics are much more similar to those found among Northern and Western Europeans. The enduring consequences of different skills and experience possessed by people from different parts of Europe can be seen in the fact that the average income of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe to the United States in the early 20th century was equal to what was earned by the bottom 15% among immigrants from England, Scotland, Holland, or Norway. Illiteracy was also higher among immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. In school, their children tended to lag behind the children of their either native-born Americans or the children of immigrants from Northern and Western Europe, and their IQ scores were often very similar to those of American blacks and were sometimes lower. Nor was all this peculiar to American society. In pre-World War II Australia, immigrants from Southern Italy, Dalmatia, Macedonia, Greek countryside were typically illiterate and spoke primarily their local dialects rather than the official languages of their respective home countries. More than three quarters of these Southern European immigrants to Australia were the, from the rugged hills or mountains, the steep coastlines or islands of the region, rather than from the urban areas or plains. Although these remote areas were eventually drawn into the modern world, the skills of their peoples continued to lag behind the skills of the peoples in other parts of Europe that were more industrially advanced, and this was reflected in their earnings in Australia as in the United States. As late as the 1970s, the median income uh, earnings of immigrants to Australia from Greece, Italy, or Yugoslavia fell below the earnings of immigrants from West Germany or from English-speaking countries. Southern Europeans in Australia remained underrepresented in professional and technical occupations, and from nearly half among the Italian immigrants to an absolute majority among the Greek and Yugoslavian immigrants were unskilled laborers. Okay, so I mean, it's it's a this is a tough paragraph to read uh, for me, um, just because it does express some realities. But what what I appreciate about it is that it's approaching the disparity between the different types of peoples, uh, not as a as a racial from a racial supremacist or even a moral characteristic, but quite literally as a practical matter from the areas that they happen to have roots from, and and it's hard to argue with that. Even if it is a little bit hard to, to you know, understand it, it really just kind of makes me sad for the people, you know, who come from more impoverished areas that, you know, move to places like the United States and Australia trying to make a better living, you know, still kind of lagging behind their peers in that respect. But, um, you know, it, it kind of goes to show you it's, it's really just the, the, the differentiation of, of opportunity that's available to these people really makes a big impact on, on, on multiple generations, even the ones that, that leave, you know, their, their existing, uh, areas. Yeah. And Tom, in this essay, I mean, we're going to, we're going to wrap this up here because this essay, there's, there's a whole section on the, um, on, uh, South America. There's a whole section on Africa. Um, a lot of the parts from that things I spoke about in African geography was actually pulled from this, um, in our last episode, but I mean, it goes into way more depth and why it's, you know, the, the geography of Africa and, and why it's been hard to develop um, large civilizations and especially sub-Saharan Africa. But really is, I mean, Thomas Sowell, if you know Thomas Sowell's history, Thomas Sowell is, he's African-American, he's black, he's black um, was educated in Harlem. Um, his, but he's also, he's a, he's a genius. He's a genius, Harvard 
graduate, um, you know, writer. Um, there's some books that his specialty is is kind of wealth and disparity. Um, that's what probably his strongest subject, but he writes a lot about um, other topics. There's some books that Thomas Sowell has written, um, A Conflict of Visions, I don't think are very, I, some people say Conflict of Visions is his best book. I think Conflict of Visions is his worst book. Uh, some people really like it. I don't. I don't think his premise is good in that book. Um, but um, and then his other. His probably his most famous book is, is Basic Economics. Basic Economics, I think, is the best. It's. I think it's the greatest entry level economics book ever written in terms of just like super easy to understand economics. It's just the. It's just awesome. Um, but you know, there's. He's a conservative writer, um, more kind of libertarian conservative bent, but there's definitely things I agree and disagree with him on. But um, this is one of his, I think, his, his really strong essays. And um, I think that people should read it. And um, hopefully you learned something and got interested. Uh, I think we're going to wrap this up here. Danny, is there anything else that you would like to add? Well, I mean, I sure, I sure learned a lot, and, and I don't typically read a whole lot of conservative writers, but there's, I, I find very little in this essay that, that I was disagreeing with or that I thought was a stretch. So No, Thomas so Sowell, very, sol- very there, solid. There's a difference between conservative writers like, I don't know. Anne Rand. <laughs> Who? Um, Anne Rand? Yeah. No, Anne Rand is, her, I mean, I, there's, Anne Rand is, is an objectivist, she would call herself. Okay. So she wouldn't call herself a conservative. She's more, sounds a lot like there's the, a lot of crossover. Uh, the racial realist title. <laughs> no, she's an object. Anne Rand stuff. I I like some of Anne Rand stuff as well. I don't like. <laughs> I I think Atlas Shrugged is was uh, Atlas Shrugged was was torture for me to read. Was was literal. Tor- is like masochist torture I can't, I can't, self-torture to i can't i can't book. comment intelligently on that book i, didn't, I never read it yeah so. I, I, I think it might have just been the copy i was reading the book was so small and the font was so small but i mean i read it because i was like oh you gotta read atlas shrugged or you're not smart um and i read it but i mean there's things i like about Anne Rand. there's things that i don't like about Anne Rand. like when she said stuff about palestinians living in squabble um, I was like, okay, she's fucking crazy. But then there's some other things that she's written that I was like, okay, that's a good point. You know, when she's um, comparing like the Israeli-Palestine conflict, she said, well, the Palestinians live in squabble because um, she was all about, you know, really the, the 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 economically productive are the kind of the masters of the universe and mm. they kind of bring the rest of society up through their own ingenuity I think there's there's some truth to that, but then there's also some 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 really big kind of moral faults in in, in that thinking as well. For sure. So, uh, but I don't want to get on Anne Rand. I was saying more like it's not kind of bubblegum stuff, like um, more so like Anne culture. <laughs> yeah, the um, other Anne, <laughs> like Anne, Anne culture, or or um, you know, kind of like a modern day like. Democrats are mentally disturbed liberal idiots. <laughs> Served you like not that that kind of writing is you know maybe it's kind of entertaining to read and and be like yeah fuck those guys too sometimes but um you know different caliber of writer there's there's Thomas a different said. there's a different substance to this type of writing where yeah. it's you know source and you know the writing is just kind of expert 
like there's like a mastery of the English language that's here. So I mean, there's there's just those differences where there's like real substance. There's not that many great conservative writers. I'll be honest. Um, there's a handful of them. I think Thomas Sowell is one of them. Um, if you consider James Burnham a conservative writer, which I actually don't really consider him a conservative writer, but some throw him in that group. He's he's one of the other ones. Um, but you know, I think there's there's not a lot. Um, I mean, there's a lot of great Marxist writers too. Yeah. Um, I love Eric Hobsbawm, which which uh, which uh, Joe Solis Mullen recently put me on, and I've been kind of reading furiously lately, like very not furiously, furiously a lot. I've been reading a lot. See, I don't have a mastery of the English language or speech patterns, as you can tell. Okay, do you want to end this episode? Yep. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode. Danny and I will go back to a normal position where we're not awkwardly standing next to each or sitting next to each other, staring at a screen and um, probably hang out and drink some beers or something yep. um, while I have my last couple of days in New York City. Also, programming note, um, as you've probably heard from the beginning of the episode, Henry is expecting a child very soon. So our episode schedule might be a little weird. So if we go a week without, you know, releasing an episode or a week or two or so you'll know why it's we haven't dropped off the face of the planet we're just sorting out how to do that now we do have episodes backlogged so we might be able to plug those gaps but just giving you a heads up uh next week's episode is not guaranteed no next week's episode is not guaranteed no episode next is guaranteed (laughs) to be completely honest but um i think my wife is due in 10 days so which means maybe we'll film one in i don't know that's not the priority obviously but we'll try um okay um make sure that you rate and review the podcast that is the number one way to support the show and um you can also join our patreon patreon is cool there's been some new patreon uh entries i will get to you and send you the slack the slack link i'm sorry for being late on that i've been busy with uh permits (laughs) fucking permits also, check out the website, uh, www.brohistory.com. We just re- renewed it. In addition to the uh, content for the uh, podcast, you'll also see some blog posts, which we hope to have up frequently. Uh, and we should be getting some new Gorkistan drops, some Gorkistan lore written by uh, one of our very own Patreon members as well. So a lot of fun stuff going on there. And pretty soon, maybe some merch. So check that out. Okay, peace, guys. Peace. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.